And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a great hour planned for you. We're going to have Dr. Paul Kangor joining us in just about a minute and a half. And then Ken Ham's going to be with us in the second half of the hour. You know him as the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the highly acclaimed Creation Museum and the world-renowned Ark Encounter. He is uh, quite a scientist, quite an interesting guy, and looking forward to that as well. So that's all ahead on this hour. I'm always glad when I get a chance to speak to Dr. Paul Kengor. Um, if you do not have any of his books, you're going to want to go to Amazon and check it out because he's got quite a collection. Very engaging. He's a smart guy, and he uh, can explain things really well. He's an author of, and, polit- and professor of political science at Grove City College. He's also the executive director of the Center for Vision and Values, which is a Grove City College think tank policy center. So I'm very excited to get him on. So how about 60 seconds? And then we're there. Dr. Paul Kingor is my guest. I gave a glowing introduction of him prior to the break. So let's get right to it. Hey, Paul, how are you? Hey, Bill. Good. How are you? Nice to hear your voice once again. Yeah, good. Good to be back on with you. Yeah, it's been thank a while. you. How's the school year starting for you? It, it's it's starting pretty good, yeah. and we um, the weather's been good. Surprisingly, oh, awesome. I, I tell you, I just love this global warming. I, I just, <laughs> I just, I hope it continues. You know? uh, yeah, I'm with you. All right, uh, good... I mean, why, why why are people complaining about it? I, I don't get it. I'm starting to think that maybe it's uh, God's blessing, right? Yeah, He's, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. How do we know it's not? Right? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let me ask you this, Paul. This question I've been having on my mind, I thought I'm going to ask Paul Kingor this. So if socialism is the concentration of power into the hands of government elites so they can achieve the central planning of the economy and then radically redistribute wealth, was that something that Jesus called for? Yeah, I, I I don't I don't recall reading that in my Bible. Okay, but, but you know, according to the Reverend William Barber, who was speaking at the August meeting of the Democratic National Committee, he said, and this is an exact quote: "If someone calls it socialism, then we must compel them to acknowledge that the Bible must then promote socialism, because Jesus offered free health care to everyone, and he never charged a leper a copay." Unquote. Yeah. So, Voila. I, I didn't realize it, but um, there you go. The, yeah. the Bible is a socialist document, and, and Jesus was a socialist, which yeah, I just happen to be reading here right now. Michael Bakunin, who was one of the original anarchists, and I'll tell you, he would have fallen over if you would have told him that Jesus was a fellow socialist. He probably would have strangled you if you told him that. <laughs> well, he when probably Reverend... would have said, no, he's not. Yeah. He is not. When Reverend Barber delivered that uh, that speech, he got quite a rousing applause from everyone in the room. Granted, it was the Democratic Committee, but uh, it was well-received, right. wasn't it? Yeah, and in fact, if if you watch the video clip of that, he the standing behind him is the DNC chair, Tom Perez. Yeah. And, and also, so if you're looking at the video, Tom Perez is on the right, and then to the left are, are two women from the Democratic National Committee, and they all jump to their feet and thunderous applause, and, and everyone in the audience jumps up. And he, he continues on. He described the Constitution and the Bible as socialist documents. And he said, if you want to have a moral debate, bring it on, baby. Yeah. So, so he, 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 yeah, I guess socialism is the, you know, the, the, new, the new gospel. Yeah. Uh, Paul, where in the New Testament does it say that we need, the government needs to punish the rich? And then use tax money to help the poor. Is that in there? Right. 
Well, and, and where does it say too? If we, if you really want to get down to brass tacks here, the the, the socialists and and you know communists as well. And, and in fact, uh, Marx Marx and Engels were socialists, and the, the Communist Manifesto, socialism according to Marxist Leninist theory, Marx Marxist theory, communi- communist theory, socialism is the final step before you get to full blown communism. And and they lay out very carefully in the Communist Manifesto and other documents. In fact, point one in the ten point plan. And the Communist Manifesto calls for abolition of property, and and Marx and Engels wrote the entire communist program may be summed up in the single sentence: abolition of private property. And and one thing that is clear throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus, you know, Moses with the Ten Commandments, Jesus in various parables, talking about the, uh, the you know the owner of the vineyard. The uh, so so many parables. Property ownership is very clear. You 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 are allowed to own property, and it's you know worship of money is is wrong. Mm-hmm. But, but 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 money in itself isn't evil. Property isn't evil. It's what you do with it. It's 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 how you use it, and I think that's something that is being you know completely brushed over here in these sweeping generalizations about oh well I I w- I want to help the poor. So I think that that means that I'm a socialist and that the, and the, the Bible is a socialist document because, hey, it talks about helping the poor. But what's really, really crucial to understand is that that is a gross and, and you know, a crass simplification. You know, j- just because you could find a few things that, that socialists talk about that are maybe good and might have things in common with the gospel – doesn't thereby mean that, that Christianity and socialism are synonymous. Mm-hmm. That's a complete misunderstanding of, of socialism and of Christianity. Well, if we think of the, the Good Samaritan story, uh, we realize that the, the individual opened up his own resources to help somebody. And I think most of us would rather be making decisions as to where we place our money versus sending it to the government uh, to fund some kind of welfare or bureaucracy. Well, that's right, and in fact, the, the whole point of the of the Good Samaritan story is is that the Good Samaritan he's he's traveling along there. He sees the wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, and and he and he helps him up, puts him on his horse or his donkey, whatever the animal is, takes him to the inn, and he he goes to the innkeeper. He says, "Here's money to take care of this individual for the next." however many days that I'm going to be on the road. And in fact, to show how genuinely responsible and caring that he is, he says, that, and I'm going to be coming back through. And when I come back through, I'm going to check on him. I'm going to make sure that, that you took care of him. I'm going to follow up on this. He doesn't instead instead say, hey, 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 look, here's a wounded guy here. Where are the authorities? Where, you know, go find some rich people to take some money from them forcibly, whether or not they want to give it or not. Mm-hmm. We, where, where's the government? Let's pool our resources together and help this person. Where, where's the local tax man? Where's the tax man? Where's the ta- I'm out of here. I'm out of here. No, he, he stops and takes private initiative, private charity. He does this on his own, and that's, that's the kind of thing that pleases God. When we, through our own free will, engage in genuine charity. It's, it's not real Christian charity to force with the power of the state, the power of of, of of the gun, the power of prison, the power of fines, whatever you want to use, to, to force other people to do your quote-unquote charitable work for you. Mm-hmm. Charity is about private individuals giving in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I've been studying the parables lately, Paul, and when I think of the workers in the, vine- in the vineyard, 
and they're starting to squabble over money because some are getting paid the same amount for coming in at the 11th hour. And, right. And the, the vineyard owner says, well, don't I have the, the right to do what I want with my money? That's right. That's, it, that's it, supply it, and demand, isn't it? That's not socialism. That's right. And, and I mean, that, that's, that's a, really, it's a really telling par- parable. So, so, I mean, you have a couple things that are being defended there. One, you, you have somebody who's, who's willing to um, pay, uh, you know, pay everyone and, and pay them maybe even equally or pay one. But, but, but whatever it is, you have the individual owner who owns land, owns property, owns a business, an entrepreneur. He has what, what, what economists call freedom of choice in the sense of, of choosing to pay his wage earners whatever he wants to pay them you know, based on the fact that, that, that he owns the land. So whatever you want to make of that, fair or unfair, just or unjust, at the very least, once again, there is yet another example of property ownership that you see in the New Testament. And, and socialism and communism uh, find property ownership anathema. Marx and Engels even say, oh, you say that uh, you don't really want to do away with property, do you? And they say, yes, that is exactly what we're saying. They, they, they doubled down on it. Now, I know there's a lot of people today who consider themselves maybe democratic socialists, and they define that in whatever way that they want to. And I, uh, I, I suppose that's better than defining in the way that Marx and Engels defined it. But, but, but I don't like this kind of carefree, reckless, irresponsible way of throwing around the word socialism and saying things like the Reverend Barber said, where just because Jesus took care of a leper or talked about lepers means, therefore, that, that the Bible and the U.S. Constitution are socialist documents. Mm-hmm. That's sophistry. And and it's not even Marx and Lenin would agree with that. And I, I don't know, maybe this would be strong to say it, put it this way, Bill, but frankly, it's kind of blasphemy. I, I kind uh, of agree with you, Paul. Yeah, I, 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 I really feel that you could say that because communism and socialism were hostile to religion. Mm-hmm. Marx said communism begins where atheism begins. Lenin said all worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. Oof. Necrophilia, yeah. He said there is nothing more abominable than religion. Lenin, echoing Marx, said religion is the opium of the masses. Religion is a kind of spiritual booze. Booze. So, so, so to go and take what those guys founded and championed socialism and say that our Bible is a socialist document, I, I, I think you could argue that that's not only a gross misrepresentation, but, but you're blaspheming the Bible. It, it's, it's such a, a stark misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. Paul, as we go to break, I just want to temper the conversation a little, a little bit. Is your favorite baseball team winning right now? Uh, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay, I guess they're out. <laughs> they are awful. Yeah, they're they're terrible. They are they awful. awful year. They are, right. they are a blasphemy <laughs> to Major League Baseball. <laughs> I, I agree. All right, Dr. Paul Kinkler is my <laughs> guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. Dr. Paul Kengor is an author and professor of poli-sci at Grove City College, executive director of the Center for Vision and Values, which is a think tank policy center. Always glad to have him on the show. 
And uh, Paul, I was just thinking about, um, I think of the parable might be in Luke 12, where a man confronts Jesus and wants him basically to, you know, have his brother give him some of his inheritance, share the inheritance. And Jesus pretty much says, who made me the judge? You know, and almost right. almost rejected him for being envious. And I, I think envy must be at the root of who gets the wealth and power. Yeah, it, it, it is, and it's it's kind of funny that that Bill of the of the seven deadly sins, envy is the only one that doesn't even give you a moment's pleasure. Right? <laughs> right. That's you're true. Just, that is so true. Know, right. You know, lust has its place. Right. I mean, you. you <laughs> Uh, uh, gluttony, right? At, at, at least at one point in the process of being gluttonous, you're in, you're enjoying the meal, right? Right. Uh, at, at some point, these things done in excess, as they uh, become become destructive, then then they become vices and they become deadly sins. But envy, there's never anything good in envy. It, it just it just fosters anger and misery all, all the way through it. But um, yeah, no, no, that, no, that's that's right. And um, I, I wanted to say something else. In that. What did you say about the beginning of the parable? Um, this man approached Jesus and kind of wanted him to help him get the inheritance split. Yes. Well, and, and that and that too. It, that, that's that's a very key point. Sorry, I lost my train of that's thought. That's okay. But 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 the, the Bible as well. I mean I mean talks about even the very notion of of of, of inheritance, right? And the the the, prodig, the the prodigal son, you know, he 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 returned he returns home, and and the other son who's been faithful to his father says, well, well, this isn't fair. The other one went and squandered his inheritance and everything else. It, it, that's something too that that socialism and communism actually seek to abolish the right of inheritance. In mm-hmm. fact, that's that's point three. In Marx and Engels' ten-point plan, one of them is abolition of property. The second is a graduated or progressive income tax, and the third is abolition of all right of inheritance. That money, that wealth, that money, property, property in the form of money or cash, would go to the state, and the state would redistribute that, and the state would decide fairly, right, quote unquote, what everybody should get equally. So it even infringes upon your property in the sense of the right of you. To, to bequeath, pass on your inheritance to heirs, to your children, and for, and for children to inherit that money from their parents. So it's yet another example of the kind of thing that socialist does, which is why Christians shouldn't be socialists. If, if, you, if you wanna, if, if you wanna do charity, if you wanna take care of the poor, we'll, we'll, we'll do that through the Christian faith. Yeah. You know, don't, don't do it through the, uh, the, the, the secular ideology, the atheistic ideo- ideology of socialism. Just do it, do your charity, it, 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 do these teachings, helping the poor, it, do it through Christianity. Don't do it through Christian socialism, because there's no such thing as Christian socialism. It's a contradiction in terms. Really uh, interesting. So when I'm thinking of uh, the money changers, do you know, was that all a legitimate business or was it fairly corrupt all the time? Well, that, that's that's a good question. I, I think um, – I, and, and I, I get – historically, I probably I probably wouldn't be the person to, to, to answer sure. that. But yeah, I think that goes to lending, banking – uh, even even being even being a business owner, right? Yeah. It, it's funny. It's funny that you're asking me this because I had a long conversation with my students on this today in, in my two o'clock comparative politics class. I've got your and, class bug, just so you know. I listened all day. 
<laughs> and and we we were talking about we talked about some of the virtues and vices of capitalism and and one student pointed out well in capitalism in in free markets you get you get greed you get you get selfishness and and another student said yeah but aren't we really talking there not so much about capitalism but but the human condition right the fall of man if you if you want to see incredible greed and selfishness go to Castro's Cuba Mm. Where 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 the the island is owned by the Castro brothers, right? The Castro family. You have ninety percent of of the country indeed has an equal distribution of wealth. Then the other ten percent, really the other one one percent, yeah, they have ninety percent of the wealth. You want to see greed? Go to the old Soviet Union. Go to China. Look at the Chinese Politburo. At least in America, you have the freedom in a free market system to try to aspire, the opportunity to try to aspire to wealth. In the communist and socialist systems, it's like socialism is for the masses but not the masters, right? It's mm -hmm. for the ruled but not the rulers. So, so what you're talking about there – uh, here again, Reverend Barber and others, they, what they really want to rail against and protest against is, is a human condition called sin. And, and the best way to reconcile that and address that is, is through the basic teach, teachings of the Christian gospel, not through the secular faith of socialism. Mm -hmm. When I think of some of the, the generous people in this world, of which there are many, and you look at some of the uh, richest people around, I think of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and they're, they're collectively putting their resource together to try to make a difference, like in other parts of the world, like they're reinventing the toilet and trying to do things that are going to really help humanity. And, you know, part of that power comes from them having been successful in business. Why are we so well, angry with them? Well, that's right, and, and you and I wouldn't even agree with a lot of the things that that, that Bill Gates gives to, and including his wife uh, Melinda Gates as well. But but to his credit, he he's he's made his money legally, fairly. People have chosen to buy his products. Mm -hmm. When when he becomes you know more greedy, which he's really not seeking to be greedy, he'll admit he has more money than he needs. Oh, he's really just staying in the business because because he enjoys the innovation. Right. He enjoys he enjoys doing what he's doing. He he he'd never tell you that he needs more money. Uh, even when he builds more things, even when he builds more things on his own property, his mansion, another tennis court, <laughs> he, he's 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 employing people. And and when he makes more products. He's making products that people want to buy. He doesn't become wealthy unless people choose to buy his products. That, that's the way a free system works. Now, it's never perfect. You, you have plenty of vice in a capitalist free market system. Look, I mean, probably among the most downloaded things on the Internet are pornography, people that are making money from porn. And so that, you know, that's an abuse of freedom. That's mm -hmm. an abuse of, of, of free markets. But I got news for you. You have you have those kinds of abuses and and in uh, in closed systems as well. Guess who has the world's lar largest private collection of pornography? Kim in North Korea. Is that right? Little Rocket Man. Yeah. Wow. I did not Prior know that. to that, it was, it was probably Saddam Hussein. Wow. So yeah, it, 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 this is the universal problem of sin, it, otherwise known as the fall of man. Mm -hmm. When I'm thinking back to Reverend Barber's comments about, you know, Jesus healing lepers and never asking for a copay. You know, Jesus was, to my recollection, 
performing these miracles as he was establishing his divinity. That was not the, the, the health plan at the time. Right. No, that's, the, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So I don't know if those <laughs> apply today. And I'm not sure why the left is picking on health care and claiming it's the uh, foundational basic human right. Well, isn't eating a human right, too? I mean, why, why aren't grocery stores free? Sure. Well, and, and, and how many of the hospitals that, that exist in, in America today were, were, were founded by, by religious people and religious orders? I what? worked for – yeah, but be, what, when, before I went into the field that I'm now and I was, that I am now and I was pre-med, I worked at Presbyterian University Hospital in, in, in Pittsburgh. Um, also, just around us in Pittsburgh, there was Mercy Hospital. There was St. Francis Hospital. Um, how many hospitals have the word saint in, in, in front of them? So, so you know, Christians built those things, and they did those things. They did that out of Christian love, Christian charity. They didn't do it because of a commitment to Marx and Engels and, and Lenin and socialism. Really? Yeah, that's interesting. Paul, you always inspire me to fake like I'm smarter than I really am. <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't know how many people I inspire, but I, 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 I guess I, I don't know if that speaks well of, of you and me or not. I'm, no, I'm not sure. you're always a delight to talk to, and I always appreciate your passion. Thank you so much for doing the show. All right. Anytime. Take yep. care. Thanks so much. Dr. Paul Kangor has been my guest. You can uh, learn more about Paul um, at Amazon.com. Go to the website and see all of the books that he's written. He's written A Pope and a President, uh, The Communist, and all. there's many, many books you can pick. Let me take a little break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Ken Ham. Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to uh, be inviting to the program Ken Ham. He is the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the highly acclaimed Creation Museum and the now world-renowned Ark Encounter. Ken is uh, in more is, is in b- bigger demand than hardly anyone I know, so I'm awfully glad he can be joining me today. Ken, how are you? Hey, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I've got so many questions, I don't even know where to begin. How about start with... One that is been hotly debated around uh, this uh, station, and that is, can a person uh, believe in an old earth and an old universe and, uh, you know, still be considered a wise Christian? Well, you know, let's look at what the scripture says. Uh, It says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, um, you will be saved. It doesn't say... If you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and believe in a young earth and reject evolution, you'll be saved. It doesn't say that. In other words, salvation is conditioned upon faith in Christ, you know, Christ alone, grace alone, of course. and so on. And here's what I say to people. Can you, can you be a Christian and believe in millions of years? There are many Christians who believe in millions of years. There are many Christians who believe in evolution. And then people say to me, well, it doesn't matter then. And I say, oh, yes, it matters. It matters for a, for a number of reasons, but one of the big issues is this. You don't get millions of years from the Bible. You don't get evolution from the Bible. 
really, when you look at it, this is very different than you know talking about different views of eschatology or different views of baptism uh, when it comes to you know sprinkling or immersion or different views of Sabbath day or whatever. Because then what we're doing is looking at scripture and and uh, interpreting scripture with scripture. And I know you know obviously someone's wrong and God will sort us all out one day, but. You're sort of arguing from what Scripture is teaching. But the reason people have different views of Genesis is because they're starting outside of the Bible from man's beliefs about the past. And really, evolution of millions of years, a man's pagan religion of the day, uh, of this age, trying to explain life without God. And we're taking those ideas to God's Word and deliberately reinterpreting what it clearly says. So the first issue is it's an issue of authority. Who's the authority, God or man? Does man have authority over God's word to change what God's word clearly says? And, you know, one of the problems is a lot of our younger generations have been brought up in churches with Sunday school teachers, Christian leaders that have said to them, you can believe in millions of years uh, as long as you trust in Jesus, but they realize the Bible doesn't say that. And you, or you can believe in evolution and say God used it, but they realize the Bible doesn't say that. So it unlocks that door to say you don't have to take God's word as written. It creates that doubt that leads to unbelief. And then the second thing is, if you believe in millions of years, <clears throat> you've got a problem as a Christian because the idea of millions of years came out of atheistic and deistic naturalism of the 1800s by people who wanted to try to explain the whole fossil record without God and they said this fossil record was laid down over millions of years before man and many Christians have taken that and added it into the Bible but when you look at the fossil record, it's a record of death, of bloodshed, of suffering, of diseases. There are diseases like cancer in the fossil record after God made man, in the Bible, he said everything he made was very good. If you believe in millions of years, God calls cancer very good. And not only that, when you look at the world today and see all that death and suffering, one of the big problems our younger generation has is this. If you believe in a loving God, how can you, because of all the death and suffering in the world, and see, if you've told them to believe in millions of years, then God's responsible for the death and suffering. But the Bible makes it clear our sin is responsible Death is an enemy. It's an intrusion. It's going to be thrown in the lake of fire one day, and there's going to be a restoration one day to uh, a, a world without death and suffering like it used to be. And so you can't have all this death, suffering, bloodshed, disease before sin, blaming God for that when the Bible makes it clear the whole creation groans because of our sin, not God being responsible for that. So it's a very important issue when you think it through. A fascinating answer, Ken. When I think of some of the climate worship that's going on today, is that a product of us having lost our foundations in Genesis? Well, yes, it is uh, in in a number of different ways, actually. Uh, first of all, you, you know, really the the whole climate change issue is very similar to the origins issue in this regard. Here we are in the present. And the presuppositions that you have determine how you interpret what happened in the past. And uh, so people today, for instance, if they say, oh, look, um, little changes, uh, little changes take a long time to, to correct or something like that or to change back. Like if you believe that, you know, the ice cores that they take when they take these ice cores and all these different layers and they say it shows climate changing over millions of years, whereas ice cores, actually, those layers can be laid down very quickly. You only have to be in one blizzard to see that. Mm -hmm. But 
if uh, if you believe it takes millions of years, then you think, oh, if there's a little change, either cooling or warming, it's it's going to take a long time to change back, and and this. And, and that means if you have the wrong foundation, you're going to have the wrong interpretation. See, if you believe that the universe is only thousands of years old as I do, and Noah's flood was 4,300 years ago, Noah's flood caused dramatic climate change, generating an ice age after the flood, and then the world has been settling down ever since. So when people say, do I believe in climate change? I say, yes, there's been climate change ever since the flood, and those climates fluctuate. But here's the thing. You know what Genesis 9 says? After the flood, God made a promise, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night are not going to cease while this earth exists. In other words, all this stuff about within nine months, as you heard recently, some of these protests are going on associated with the United Nations. Uh, and, you know, so within nine months or up to 12 years, as some politicians are saying, and the earth's going to be destroyed and we've got to be fearful, we're going to destroy ourselves. Uh, that's absurd. God's in total control, and day and night, seed time and harvest, uh, winter and summer aren't going to cease. Uh, and so you don't have to fear all those things, uh, which they do, and all these alarmist ideas. And the other thing is, go back in history. How many times have people said, like when I studied at university, uh, I used these books by Ehrlich and Ehrlich, the Population Resources and Environment, when I was studying environmental issues and they were saying that there was going to be overpopulation we we're going to run out of food and within a few years there was going to be this problem and that problem and you know just like al gore in his movie you know using people's predictions to say you know sea levels are going to rise and all this none of that none of that has happened everything's been fairly stable you know we we do have uh weather patterns that continually change for various reasons but overall it's very stable and it really comes down uh, to your presuppositions. But if I can say one other thing, in saying what I said, that, you know, the climate is is fairly stable within ranges and God's going to keep it that way, that doesn't mean, I believe, we should abuse the environment. There is a Christian environmental worldview, and that is we look after the creation, we're given dominion for it, we have the dominion mandate in Genesis, but we use it for man's good and God's glory. We don't do what we read in Romans 1, and that is let the creation have dominion over us and worship the creature more than the creator, uh, which is the sort of thing I see happening today, uh, where you know people are more concerned about uh, saving an animal uh, from certain environmental things, but yet they will say that you can abort babies as much as you want. You can kill human beings as much as you want. There's a lot of inconsistency and hypocrisy in all of that from uh, those who don't stand on God's Word. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot to think about, Ken. Well, you know, when you hear people talk about, you know, a, a rock that was found and carbon dating said it was 4.2 billion years old, what do you th- how do you respond to things like that? Well, first of all, <clears throat> Bill, uh, just uh um, uh, help people understand. I know people all the time say, oh, carbon dating dates things to millions or billions of years mm-hmm. old, just as you quoted. But actual fact, carbon dating itself has nothing to do with millions or billions of years. That's not me as a creationist saying it. The millions, billions of years come from dating methods like uh, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, uh, some of those, but not carbon dating. Carbon 
carbon dating, the half-life of radioactive carbon is only 5,730 years. And so what they would say is after about 100,000 years, radioactive carbon is not detectable. So uh, anyone who knows who knows their stuff will say, it doesn't matter whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist or an atheist, Christian or whatever, carbon dating can only date things back to, say, 100,000 years at the most. But uh, And so, therefore, the way in which you can use carbon dating is something is supposed to be millions or billions of years old, you should not get a carbon date for it. But actually, things that are supposedly millions and billions of years old, you do get carbon dates for, which means there's something wrong with this whole dating uh, you know, uh, procedure and understanding here. Now, carbon dating has assumptions, but every dating method has assumptions. And so when you think about it, if you're trying to date a rock, okay, you've got to have something that changes with time. Uh, so that's why they use these radioactive, radiometric dating methods. For instance, if you take lead, uh, radioactive uh, in uranium, radioactive uranium changes into a particular type of lead and they ha it has what's called a half-life, uh, how long it takes for half of that radioactive material to decay. Well, when you dig up a rock, you have to assume that all the lead came from that uranium. You have to assume that nothing was leached out over time. You have to assume that the rates of change have always remained the same. There are many other assumptions as well, and all those assumptions can be shown to be not valid. And in fact, another radioactive dating method is potassium argon, potassium changing into argon. There's been a number of instances where, say in New Zealand, a lava flow was formed. They know when it formed, hardened into rock, so it should be zero years old. They dated it, it dates to millions of years old. And the reason is because they found that argon comes up from the mantle, so there's already a lot of argon there when it's zero years old, which means that uh, it's going to date old when it's only zero years old. Uh, so, and here's the thing that we find. When they know when a rock formed, they can work out why the dating method doesn't work. When they didn't see the rock form, they just assume it works. But there's a whole range of dates that they, that they get. And what most people don't understand is 90%, 90% of all the age dating methods you can use to age date things on the earth contradict the millions and billions of years. It's only a small percentage of them that even get the millions and billions of years. But all those dating methods are based on fallible assumptions. There's only one infallible dating method, and that is the Word of God. It tells us that God made everything in six literal days. On day six, he made the first man, Adam. Adam had a son, Seth, at 130 years old. Then Seth had a son, Kenan, and so on. It tells you what age they're all born. You can work it all the way down to Abraham, Abraham to Christ. Christ to the present adds up to about 6,000 years. And there is nothing in observational science that contradicts that. Wow, Ken, that, you know, I'm smart enough to ask the question, but maybe not smart enough to completely understand your answer. So I'm going to have to sit and listen to it a second time because it was brilliant, just so you know. Ken Ham is my guest. I'm going to take a very short break, and when I come back, we'll continue more. Ken is the president and co-founder of Answers in Genesis. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I have on our studio line Ken Ham, president and co-founder of Answers in Genesis. And uh, he's just an absolute delight to uh, to hear from. Uh, Ken, I'm trying to think if we're going to go back to the basics, do we go back to Genesis 1 to 11 so we compl- so we have a complete understanding on this issue? Well, let me put it this way. I, you know, I'm a teacher, and so I like to communicate in ways that make it easy, I hope, for people to understand. Think about building a house, okay? When you build a house, you don't start with the roof and then build the walls and then build the foundation. That doesn't work. You start with the foundation. It has to be the right foundation. You've got to start with the foundation, and then you build the walls, and then you build the roof. Here's how we need to understand it, and this is what I challenge people with. Genesis 1 to 11 is like the foundation. Why do I say that? The first 11 chapters in the Bible give you the geological, biological, astronomical, anthropological history that is foundational to every single doctrine and foundational to the rest of the Bible, which is all a foundation to our whole worldview. In other words, Genesis 1 to 11 is really like the foundation. Now, the walls and the roof are the rest of the Bible, which deals with you know our doctrines and the gospel and, and so on, the structure of Christianity that comes out of God's word. For instance, think about this. If we're going to tell people about the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, uh, where do you find out about the origin of sin to understand where sin came from? Well, Genesis 1 to 11, you know, Genesis 3 in particular. Uh, Okay, so why is Jesus called the last Adam? Takes the place of the first Adam. Uh, That's in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, When Jesus in Matthew 19 was asked about marriage, and this is recorded in Mark 10 as well, what did he say? Haven't you read he which made the beginning made the male and female? By the way, that deals with the gender issue, and that's Genesis 1.27. And said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and there'll be one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 which is a result of God making Adam from dust and woman from his side. So you become one in marriage because you're one flesh, which is also the foundation for marriage, which is one man and one woman. So I could go through all our biblical doctrines like that. Ultimately, directly or indirectly, every single biblical doctrine of theology is founded in the first 11 chapters. So if we do not believe and teach the first 11 chapters as history, and not just history, but as the foundational history for the whole of the rest of the Bible, then we're going to raise up generations who have no foundation. And so marriage will be however they want to define it. And, you know, it's interesting. You see, and a lot of the younger generations, even in our church, uh, they will say that what's wrong with gay marriage or whatever? Isn't it all about love? No, it's all about when God ordained marriage in Genesis, uh, when he made man male and female, Genesis 1.27, and made man from dust and woman from his side, which we read about in Genesis 2, and then said, this is the reason for marriage, Genesis 2.24. So marriage is a man and a woman. If you don't have that foundational history, you're not going to get the doctrine right. But that's true of every doctrine. It's true of the gospel. Uh, even why you wear clothes. You know, humans wear clothes, animals don't. Why? God gave clothes because of sin. Genesis 3.21 was actually the first blood sacrifice as a covering for our sin, a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you see that it's very, very important that we um, understand how foundational 
uh, Genesis 1 to 11 is. And yet, Genesis 1 to 11 is rejected by or glossed over by or ignored or compromised by the majority of leaders in our churches, which is, which is why I believe it's one of the major reasons we're seeing an incredible loss from the church when you look at the fact that only 18% of millennials go to church, but the greatest generation, those born before 1928, 56% of them went to church. We've seen a generational loss from the church, and I believe it's the church's fault for not standing uncompromisingly and boldly on God's word, and because they've compromised so much of God's word that the younger generations have walked away from the church. Well stated. So when I think of uh, how secularists are undermining the religious freedom of Christians today, um, and and young people in particular, they they feel a lot of pressure um, if they weren't if they had some church growing up uh, to go ahead with societal norms, which which do go against biblical truth. So how do we kind of reclaim these biblical truths and keep young kids, the younger generation engaged? If there's only 18% going to church. Well, what I say is we need to do two things. We need to be teaching apologetics, and we need to be teaching them to think foundationally. Think about it. In in a lot of our churches and Sunday schools, what we do is teach what we call Bible stories. You know, Jonah and the Great Fish, Feeding of the 5,000, Paul's Missionary Journey, Jesus on the Cross, Noah and the Ark. Now I believe those. But you see, we even still use the word story, but the word story has changed meaning. The word story to people today basically means fairy tale. 90 to 95% of these kids go to public schools where they throw in God and the Bible and prayer out, by and large, and creation out. And they teach you can explain everything by natural processes. And <clears throat> they've taught all this supposed evidence for evolution, which means really the public schools and media are teaching apologetics. Kids, here's the evidence for evolution, the evidence that, that you came from ape men, the evidence for the Big Bang, the evidence for millions of years, the evidence there never was a global flood, and so on. And what do we do in a lot of our churches and Sunday schools? and homes. Uh, Well, let's have a Bible story. What we should be doing is teaching kids, raising them up to understand the Bible's a book of history. It's not just a book of spiritual things and moral things. And the history in Genesis 1 to 11 connects to the Grand Canyon. It connects to fossils. It connects to death and suffering. It connects to the, the people groups. It connects to every aspect of reality. It connects to dinosaurs. We need to be teaching them answers to the skeptical questions of today. You see, today, when you travel around the world, you get asked the same basic questions when you tell them you believe the Bible. Wait a minute. We live in a scientific age. Science has disproved the Bible, and the Bible's a book of mythology, and Noah couldn't get the animals on the ark, and dinosaurs lived millions of years ago, and we came from ape men, and evolution's fact, and the Big Bang brought the universe into existence. Sad thing is, most parents don't know how to answer that. Most pastors and Christian leaders haven't taught generations the answers to those to get ready for them so so that when they hear them they'll be able to say oh we know why that's wrong and we can we can tell you how that Noah could fit the animals on the ark and needed the kinds not the species there was plenty of room and so on see if we had have really raised up generations with those answers in other words that's teaching them apologetics they would have understood how to answer the skeptical questions but instead a lot of those statements and what they've learned at school and through the media has caused them to doubt genesis many christian leaders have said yeah you don't need to believe it as written and so it really then undermines the authority of the word and if this part of the bible in the beginning is not true how can you trust the rest 
that doubt leads to unbelief and they walk away from the church. And that's where we're at today. Mm -hmm. We have generations who no longer have the foundation that you can trust God's word from the very beginning. And so they've walked away from the church. And if we want to go and present the gospel to them, you can't just tell them, trust in Jesus. He died for your sin. They don't even know what sin is. And and if you say the Bible says, they don't even believe the Bible's a book of history. You have to start at a different place to help them understand that the Bible's history does explain the world. We can answer those skeptical questions. We can show you that evolution is not true and so on. Because until many of them will get those answers and understand that, they're not even going to listen to what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Ken, I'm just curious, uh, I, I just appreciate your answer so much, and I'm also just curious about how the Ark Encounter has uh, broadened your understanding and, and how exciting that has been for so many people who have come through to learn more about that. Well, you know, we built uh, two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world here in northern Kentucky. Uh, the Creation Museum was open first in 2007, and the Ark Encounter, which is a life-size Noah's Ark built from timber, the biggest timber frame structure in the world, was open in 2016. And here's the comment we hear over and over and over again from young people, from children, from mums and dads. It makes the Bible come alive. And we answer those skeptical questions because, for instance, at the Ark Encounter, there's 132 bays of exhibits in all three decks inside. You can come into the Ark. You come to the Ark and you see the size. And, and, and even little kids say, wow, I didn't know it was so big because they're so used to, you know, their children's books with these little bathtub arcs with giraffes sticking out the <laughs> chimney about to sink at any moment. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You know, we, we think that they're cute, but they're actually dangerous because they're actually telling the kids Noah's Ark wasn't that big it couldn't have fit the animals on board and the and the atheists will mock at christians by saying no it couldn't fit the animals on board the ark and so you build it life-size according to the mentions in the bible then you bring people in and you have all these exhibits that answer questions about how many animals did he really need on board and a difference between kinds and species and how could he look after them how could he fed them and then all about the fossils from the flood and and then the the tower of babel after the flood forming different people groups not different races, all the information that we have there. I, I tell you, people are challenged who are not Christians to believe God's word. And we've, we've heard of many testimony of those who become Christians as a result of coming through these attractions. Christians are, are strengthened. They're set on fire for the Lord. And the effect on kids is absolutely dramatic when they say, wow, this makes sense, but the Bible's come alive. It's true. I, I can really believe this and trust it. What a difference it makes for them. Well, Ken, you've made my day. Thanks so much for doing the show. It's been a delight. Hey, thank you. Anytime. Yep. That wraps up our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you uh, for supporting Faith Radio. I hope you have a great weekend as you lay your head on the pillow tonight. Just know that God's working on his great plan in your life. It's now time to ring the bell. See you next week.